You can turn over in your Bibles to Genesis, Genesis chapter 3. We've been in a little series here for um, a couple weeks now, last week, and then uh, we also did a message on Wednesday night um, in the same series. The series is Contemplating Christmas, and um, the first week, last Sunday, we looked at uh, dealing with our doubts, and we looked in Luke chapter 1, and we talked uh, a couple things. We said, believing is essential, doubting is normal, and surrendering is personal, and uh, that was last Sunday, and those of you who haven't been out on Wednesday nights, um, this that was our last, by the way, our last Wednesday night meeting. Um, we just want to be careful everything going on uh, with the health and everything of everybody that we, uh, we're going to take a break till the end of the year on the Wednesday nights. So we won't be meeting on Wednesday nights or any women's Bible studies or anything like that, just Sunday morning. But on Wednesday last week, we looked at remembering the wonder of Christmas. And we talked about three staple truths of the very first Christmas. Number one, that God sovereignly changes our plans to guide us. Secondly, we said God routinely blows our minds <laughs> To humble us. And then, thirdly, God continually uses our obedience to bless us. And so that's where we've been in this series. And today we're going to be continuing and we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. I think it was a Christmas message. What are you doing in the book of Genesis? Why are you in the Old Testament? Isn't Christmas just in the New Testament? No. We're going to see the first place that really the gospel was presented in the Old Testament and really the the first truth of Christmas. And so today we'll be looking at Jesus is needed. Jesus is needed. Um, Over the past several years, actually, around Christmas time, you always hear Christians say, well, you know, people should say Merry Christmas and not Happy Holidays, and they make this big deal about it. I mean, they boycotted stores and everything because... You know, these people are not believers. What do you expect, right? I mean, most of them are just following their employees' instructions or being good employees, um, and they tell them you can't say Merry Christmas, say Happy Holidays, whatever. Um, And I started thinking about that, and we get so caught up with that a lot of times. I think sometimes we just have to take a break from all that and realize, you know what, we can't control what other people are thinking or feeling about the holidays or about Christmas or about Christianity. We can only control what we focus on. And it gives us a lot of sanity when we just stop and say, I'm not going to worry about other people. I'm just going to focus on the right things. And I did some research this past year, or this past week, and a lot of research this past year, but uh, this past week. And, and did you know that in 1659, 1659, that Christmas... Christmas by the Massachusetts Bay Colony was abolished right here in our country. It was abolished. Our own colonies abolished Christmas for 22 years. 22 years. And the reasoning was because there was too much drinking and carousing going on. I mean, what would they do today, man? (laughs) They'd abolish every holiday, right? That was in 1659. It was abolished for 22 years until 1681, and then it was reinstituted in our colonies 
that they could celebrate once again Christmas. I, I tell you that because I don't think there was ever really a time in our nation where Christ has been the total focus of Christmas. I don't think there's been a time. I don't think there's ever been a time where he's been the sole motivation for celebrating Christmas. I just don't think that's wasn't happening back in 1659, and it's definitely not happening today. And it probably won't happen for a long time. Because we can't control what other people think about Christmas. And a lot of times around the holidays, people are chasing a feeling for Christmas rather than the deeper meaning of Christmas. Uh, Many people evaluate their own Christmases, whether it's good or bad, based on how they're feeling. And that's not always wise. If you don't get anything else, listen to this. Christmas is not a feeling. Christmas is not a feeling. It's a what? It's a fact. It's a fact that needs to make sure that we understand the meaning so that we can celebrate it biblically. So we can celebrate it in a way that honors Christ. And so today we're going to be looking back in the first place in the Bible where Christmas is mentioned, actually Genesis chapter 3. It might sound odd because we think of Christmas being mostly in the what? The New Testament. But we're going to be looking at the need for Christmas. Jesus is needed. The promise of Christmas. And you see it right here in Genesis chapter 3. If, if, if we don't get Genesis chapter 3 right, guess what? You're not going to get anything right. <laughs> Might as well throw out the rest of the Bible. If we don't see the need for Christmas, and really the promise of Christmas right here in Genesis chapter 3... When you get to the Gospels, nothing's going to make any sense. That's why a lot of people in our country and in the world really don't celebrate Christmas for what it's all about. Because they don't understand where it originated from. They don't understand the need for it. And they certainly don't realize the promise of it. Now Genesis 3, as you read your look at your Bible there, it talks about the, the fall Right? That's the fall of mankind. It records the fall of Adam and Eve. It's recorded right here. Now, in the first two chapters, everything was good, right? In Genesis, everything was good. God created everything. He looked back and he goes, oh, this is excellent. This is good. Everybody was rejoicing. Life was great. It was greater than great. It was perfect, <laughs> No suit and ties. Well, no clothes at all, really, if you think about it. (laughs) Plenty to eat. Fellowshipping with God every single day. The perfect spouse. Literally, heaven on earth. Genesis 1 and 2, that's what it is, heaven on earth. And then you get to Genesis chapter (laughs) 3. And this is where you find what? You find evil, you find sin, you find sickness, you find pain in childbirth, you have marriage issues cropping up, the work week. It's all right here in Genesis chapter 3. And you know what? Your life will make a lot more sense if you can get a grasp, if you can get an understanding of Genesis chapter 3. Your marriage will make a lot more sense if you can understand 
Genesis, Genesis chapter, chapter 3. three. As a matter of fact, the Christian story, story, story makes so much more sense when you, when you understand Genesis chapter 3. See, many times around Christmas, what do we do? We want to run to Matthew 1, or we want to run to Luke 2 and read about the Christmas story. Well, we need to go back to Genesis chapter 3 because this is where we find it. Now, when you get to this chapter, a lot of people, commentators, theologians, they kind of freak out over this whole deal with the fruit. What was it? What kind of fruit was it? It's irrelevant. It wasn't an apple. We don't know what it was. Could have been a pomegranate. Could have been whatever. We don't know what kind of fruit it was. But this is where the forbidden fruit, the the temptation comes for Adam and Eve. Satan tempts them with forbidden fruit. Don't get twisted up about the fruit. Don't even get twisted up about, it doesn't make any sense. You know, okay, so they took a bad bite of an apple or fruit, whatever it was. Um, How can all these bad things happen as a result of that? It's not about the fruit. The fruit's irrelevant. The fruit simply represents their opportunity To what? To displace faith or unbelief. That's what it is. That's all the fruit is. Think of it this way. We're offered that same kind of fruit every single day, aren't we? In our lives. Maybe in the form of money, maybe in the form of pride, maybe in the form of having all kinds of things, materialism, temptations, that is simply fruit. It's, it's an opportunity to displace faith or what? Unbelief. That's what the fruit is. It was an opportunity for Adam and Eve to display, you know what? No, I'm not going to do what you tell me to do, Satan, Serpent, I'm going to follow God. I'm going to listen to God. We're all about God. We're not going to listen to you. But we know the story. They did just the opposite, right? It was their display, not of faith, but of what? Of unbelief. That's why all this took place. It's not about the fruit. It's about what it represented And so they listened to the word of Satan. They doubted the word and character of God. And of course, we know the story, right? Eve was tempted and she took a bite. And then she turned to her husband, Adam, and said, Here, you'll take a bite too or you'll be sleeping on the couch tonight, Adam. So Adam, what's he do? He obeyed his wife and he disobeyed his God. And their whole world, and as a result, our whole world was what? Was unraveled. Sin entered the world. This is what we have here in Genesis chapter 3. And once that has taken place, we see four consequences. Four consequences of sin immediately fall on mankind. 
See, what we have here in the first part of Genesis chapter 3 is the need for Christmas, the need for Jesus, the need for Christ. This is the whole reason why we should rejoice over Christmas. It has nothing to do with tinsel. It has nothing to do with Christmas trees. It has nothing to do with toys and gifts under the tree. It has everything to do with what? What we need. (laughs) What we need. The first part of Genesis chapter 3 displays here the desperate need for Christmas. And that's why it's so powerful. That's why we need to look at that this morning. So I want to ask you to Genesis chapter 3 and just stand in honor of God's word as we read just just two verses. It'll be quick. Verses 14 to 15. Genesis chapter 3. It reads, The Lord God said to the serpent, who's Satan, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray that you would give us wisdom as we look at this passage this morning. And Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start off here. The four consequences of sin. The four consequences of sin. Right up. Verse 7, it says, Then the eyes, Genesis 3, 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. The first consequence of sin is what? Shame. Shame. It's shame. Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, look at the difference. It says, and they were both naked, the man and his wife. Remember, this is where it's all good. And what's it say? And they were not ashamed. (laughs) So when sin enters into the world, it brings with it shame. Before sin entered into the world, nakedness reflected their what? Their innocence. Their innocence before God. You know, it's like your little two-year-old who runs around, you know, gets out of the house and starts running down the street in front of the neighbors naked. Oh, isn't that cute? Why is it cute? Because he's innocent. I don't know what he's doing, right? But when you're 32 and you're running around the, the neighborhood naked, we got a problem, right? That would be what? That would be considered shameful. That would be wayward. That would be evil. See, it goes from innocence to waywardness. When you're two running around, it's innocence. But when you're 32 running around, it's perversion or wickedness. And so suddenly, that's what we have here. Do you understand? When you're innocent, you have nothing to hide. Think about it. When you're innocent, you have nothing to hide. If you're driving down the freeway when the speed limit's 55 and you're driving 55 and you see a CHP... You don't care. But if you're driving down the freeway that has a sign posted that says 55 and you're doing 85 and you see a CHP, guess what? Your heart jumps out of your chest because you don't want to get a ticket. 
and you know you're not innocent. When you're innocent, you have nothing to hide. That's what chapters 1 and 2 are all about. But when you are, what? When you're sinful, when you're guilty, guess what? You have everything to hide. You have everything to hide. And so we have shame that suddenly comes into the picture. And if you look throughout the Bible, throughout the Bible, adult nakedness, adult nudity after Genesis 3, always, outside of the context of marriage, always is about sin. It's always about sin. It's shameful. You see it where? With Noah, right? In the Old Testament. You see it throughout the rest of the Bible. Adult nakedness in the Bible outside of the context of marriage is shameful. You could even say the more a person is free with their own nakedness, the more shameful and the more sinful they become. In the Gospels, you see nakedness when Satan would demonize people, when when Satan would possess people. Or demons would possess someone. It often involved what? Nakedness. Why? Because it was a way to heap shame upon the creation of God. It was a very shameful thing. We see it in Acts chapter 19, verse 16, where it says, And the man in whom there was an evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that, that house naked and wounded. See, when Jesus died on the cross, even, he was, wearing, he was either naked or he was wearing very little. <laughs> it was a shameful thing. Most scholars would say that he died wearing nothing. He died naked. Why? Because he was dying and taking our shame. He died naked so that you and I can be clothed forever with the greatest clothes imaginable. Think back the first time Jesus was kind of on his own. Remember, he got kind of displaced by his parents, and he's in the temple. He's in public. It says he stood up, and he read, and he declared the favor of the Lord, setting the captives free. In Luke chapter 4, 16 to 19, it says he came to Nazareth, and, and, and he had been brought up where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight to the blind to set the liberty Set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he was just doing something he has done since childhood. He went into the temple to read. A lot of people don't realize the whole fullness of what he was reading. If you look back at Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, it says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has what clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe 
of righteousness. See, that's the context context of what Jesus is reading in the temple. He has clothed me. He has covered me. That's what salvation is, is it not? Salvation is being clothed, being covered in the glory and the righteousness and the blood of who? Of Jesus Christ, of God. So he says, you know what, today you have heard, today you are seeing the fulfillment of this as he stands there. See, Jesus died naked so that you and I could be clothed in the glory and the righteousness and the forgiveness of salvation that only he can provide. So shame in the, in the garden, all of a sudden, there's nakedness. There's, it's representing something totally different than what God intended it to represent. But we see shame introduced. Secondly, the second consequence is not just shame, but guilt. We see this in, down in Genesis 3.8. Another consequence that we see immediately is guilt. Adam and Eve felt shame. Why? Because of their guilt. See, shame is a product of guilt, right? Shame is a product of guilt. When you are guilty, you feel what? You feel shameful. See, today in our society, you hear a lot of Christians even saying that, you know, since Jesus died for all of your sins, you no longer have to feel any shame. Just be happy, happy in Jesus. Well, part of that is true. You don't have to feel any shame about past sins in your past that Jesus has forgiven you of, correct? Because you've been forgiven. But listen, in real time, when you sin against the Lord on a daily basis, which we probably all do, there should be some guilt, some shame involved. You can't just... Go out and sin and say, well, Jesus forgave me all my sins, so I'm just going to sin all the more. It doesn't work that way. When you sin against God, you should feel shame. If you're currently living in sin, if you know that you're in a state of rebellion against God, if you're in a lifestyle that's opposed to God's word, then you should feel shame. There's nothing wrong with that. Shame is a totally appropriate response when you're guilty. Totally appropriate. You want a vivid description of that? Read Romans 1. That's a society in which we live today, right? For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. Therefore, as a result of that, it says in verse 24, God gave them up in the lusts of their own hearts to impurity to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 
And as a result of that, that's where you have the downfall of society. And he goes on to explain all that, dealing with homosexuality and all the things that come out of that. What's interesting is that last verse in verse 32, it says, of of Romans 1, it says, Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They know that. It says, they not only do them, but what do they do? They give approval. They give approval to those who practice them. So they're cheering the evil on. That's how shameless these people are. And you see it every day in our society. And you have to understand, when you, are, when you reach the point where you're shameless in your sin, when you no longer feel shame, it's because you've hardened your heart against the Word of God, against God himself. When you no longer feel shame over your sins, guess what? You can no longer repent because you don't think you have to. Shame drives you to repentance. Shame reveals what? That we are guilty, that we stand before God condemned. And when we're no longer shameful over our sins, when we no longer feel guilty over our sins, guess what? You no longer feel a need to repent. We live in a society where people no longer feel the need to feel shameful over anything. <laughs> they don't care. We, we live in a society today in a world where sin is what? Sin is flaunted. Sin is exalted. You know what? They throw it in your face even. And they say, you know, if if you're going to accept me, then you have to accept this. You have to accept my lifestyle or you're not accepting me. See, God says that is a person who has hardened their hearts and they can no longer repent because there's no longer any need to repent because they no longer feel any shame over their sin. It's a bad thing to feel no shame over your sin. Don't believe the lie that, oh, You know, we can't go out there and shame people. We don't have to shame them. The shame's already there. Now, if you've been forgiven, if you've trusted the Christ as your Savior, you don't want to live in the past, right? Maybe, Maybe you have a bunch of stuff in your past and you came to Christ and Christ has forgiven you. See, what's wrong is to feel shame over sins that God has already forgiven us for. Because it paralyzes us. It makes us feel unworthy to do anything. That's why so many times when even Christians fall into sin, usually what happens is what happens? They fall out of church. (laughs) Why? Because they can't deal with the shame every week. They can't deal with feeling that way, living that duplicitous life, coming and acting all holy when they know in their heart of hearts, boy, they're, they're a wretch. See, if God has forgiven you, if you've come to Christ, you don't have to go back into your life and dig up all that muck 
and feel bad over it anymore. He buried it, the Bible says, in the depths of the sea. He buried it for a reason. We don't have to look at our life, oh, I'm so sorry, Lord, when I was, before I knew Christ, I did all this stuff. And, oh, I'll be here, people go on and on and on. God says, I buried it for a reason. Leave it alone. Leave it alone. That's the problem so many times with people that end up going to some of these, quote, even Christian counselors today. They go in there dealing with something in their life, and pretty soon they're mining stuff out from when they were just a little kid. And they feel worse than they did when they went in. That's not good. That's not healthy. See, but when we sin against God, we should, it's right to feel shame. It's a reminder that we are guilty. But you don't have to feel shame over forgiven sin. That's why he says, come, come to me, all ye who are burdened down. He will forgive us. People feel shame usually because they're, they're, they're guilty. It's a totally appropriate response. But look at verse 8. It says in verse 8, Genesis 3, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This was an everyday thing. Now, this is, they call it anthropomorphic language. Okay, God doesn't walk. He doesn't have legs. It's just... Language so that we kind of understand what's going on. It's putting it in language that we can understand. Because the Bible says that God is what? God is spirit, right? So it says he's walking in the cool of day, and the man and his wife, uh uh-oh, look at what they did, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What do they do? They try to hide their shame. They try to hide their, their shame from one another, first of all, with, with these leaves that they rig up, these fig leaves or whatever it is. And they apparently do a pretty good job. It seemed to be working. So these things together, and they didn't feel that shame anymore. But when they heard God's coming, oh man, now they've got to hide their guilt, their shame from God. And so what do they do? They hide among the trees. I mean, they might have been able to use leaves on one another (laughs) to hide their shame. But they could not have used all of the forest that was available to them to hide themselves from God. Common sense, right? It wasn't going to work. But they felt this shame because they were guilty. And that was their immediate consequence of sin. Shame. Guilt. But then you see fear enter the picture. Do you understand they never felt fear before? They never felt fear before. This was a totally new feeling to them. In Genesis 3, 9 to 10, it says, And the Lord called, Lord God called to Abraham and said, Where are you? Now you might be saying, Well, wait a minute, I thought God was omniscient. I thought he knew everything. Why is God asking this question? He's not asking it for his own sake. He's asking it for Adam's sake. 
He's not talking about, Adam, where are you in the garden? He's not talking about location. He's asking, Adam, where are you with me? Where are you with me? So he said, well, Adam goes, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid. Why were you afraid? Because I was naked, and I hid myself. See, God's not talking about location here, physically, where he's at in the garden. He's talking about location of relationship. Adam, where are you with me? What has happened? I mean, we, we just did this yesterday. What, 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 what changed? I mean, when you hear me before, you used to come running to me. And now it seems you're running from me. Where are you? That's a question some of you need to hear today. God is asking, where are you? Where are you? You're trying to hide. Whether it's fear or whatever. But you're hiding. Maybe God is asking that question, where are you? I mean, he knows where you are. You're in church. You're sitting here in church. He's not talking about the location of your person. He's talking about the location of that relationship with him. He's not asking it for Adam's sake. He's asking it. He's not asking it for God's sake. He didn't. He's asking it for Adam's sake. He's asking it for Adam's benefit. He wanted Adam to stop and think, wait a minute, what did change? Where am I with God? I mean... Would you agree fear does weird things to people? Just across the board. Fear does really strange people. Sin induces fear into someone's life, and as a result, all of a sudden they become very stupid. They become ignorant. I mean, a good example is, you know, I I like to watch police shows. They took them all off the air now, which I'm really frustrated about. Cops and live PD, all that. But when you watch those shows, some of these criminals, I mean, I mean, the crime maybe they did is ingenious, but when fear gets a hold of them, I mean, they're driving a million miles an hour down the freeway and they got three helicopters over them and, you know, eight police cars and they still think they're going to get away. That's just stupidity. The stupidity. Why? Because they're afraid of being apprehended by the police. They think somehow they're going to escape. They do some of the most stupidest things you've ever seen. And see, here, Adam is no different. This is crazy. Adam sins, and as a result, he feels shame, guilt, and fear grips him. And he thinks somehow he's going to hide behind a tree from God. I mean, think about that. This is so stupid. He'll never see us over here. Let's hide behind this bush. See, that's what sin does to us. Sin makes us fearful, and sin makes us stupid. It makes us ignorant. We have it all right here. 
Usually when we sin, we lose our minds. When Adam sinned, he felt the right thing. He felt the right thing. When Adam and Eve sinned, what did they feel? They felt the right thing. They felt what? Shame. That's the right thing. They just did the wrong thing with the feeling of shame. They ran and hid. Don't do the wrong thing when you feel shame before a holy God. You're full of shame and you've done things and you just can't believe somehow that God would just forgive you. Or God would ever understand your circumstance or whatever. So what do you do? You hide. You hide. You run. I mean, you may come to church. It's not about where you're at physically. You come in, hey, God, yeah, I'm here. I'm here. See, I did my thing. I went to church. But you know in the heart, deep in your heart, you know you're, you're running, you're hiding. You know that you're running from God. You're not running toward his presence in innocence anymore. You're running from his presence in guilt and shame. What should Adam and Eve have done here? They should have run to God. They should have agreed that they had done the wrong thing. They should have confessed. <clears throat> they should have repented. Repent, repentance is just a change of mind. It's acknowledging, hey, yeah, I blew it here. So don't make the same mistake. We can learn from their mistake. See, what we're supposed to see here is that we have a, a gracious God. We have a merciful God. That if we were to run to him in our sin, and we were to confess our sin and repent of our sin, guess what? He would forgive us of our sin based upon the work of Christ. You say, well, Adam and Eve, they didn't have the gospel. They didn't have the the cross and all that, the church. Well, what's our excuse? Forget about Adam and Eve for a second. What's your excuse? You have all that. You have all the information. So immediately, the consequences fall. Shame, guilt, fear. And then the last one here, death. Death. Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, it says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, God said. For in the day that you shall eat of it, you shall what? Surely die. That's what was promised in Genesis chapter 2, 17. And people who are critics of the Bible say, Well, yeah, they didn't die. They ate the fruit and, and they didn't die. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. They died immediately in their spirit. And they will die eventually, physically, in their body. And the Bible tells us in the New Testament that that's our case as well. We're in the same predicament. What happened in the garden all the way back then happens to us today. Romans 5, 12, what's it say? Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man... Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people. Why? Because all have sinned. How many of you, around this time of year, you get a real Christmas tree? Some of you. A real one, not one of these artificial ones, you know. I always like a real tree, but 
you know, recently we've been here and there, and so it's, we have this artificial tree, one of those skinny deals. You know, it's okay. It, it works. But I miss the smell of a real tree. It just is something about it, you know. And you, you go and you buy the tree from the lot and you take it home and you set it up and you trim it and you decorate it. And, and um, it smells so good. It looks so good. You have people over, oh, your tree is so beautiful. But you know what? You know what the truth is about that tree? It's dead. It is dead. Now, we do all kinds of things to try to make it look alive, right? I remember one year... I can't remember where we were living, but I read online somewhere, oh, yeah, put some sugar in the water, and that'll help the tree. Well, yeah, it also attracted all the ants, too. It was not a good situation. (laughs) But that tree is dead. What do you have to do? All you have to do is sit back and just give it what? Give it time. (laughs) Give it time. And pretty pretty soon, it will reveal what it really is, dead See, every one of us, every single person that was ever born is like that tree. We're all dead, the Bible says, in our trespasses and sins. And when that tree was cut down, what happened? It was removed from its life source. Completely removed. And when you remove something from the source of life, it's dead. Though it doesn't look dead for a while, you can put all the tinsel on it, all the the Christmas lights and all that stuff and look back, sit back and go, look at how beautiful the tree is. It looks so wonderful. It smells so good. Just give it time. Just give it time. See, we are all cut off from the source of life. We're all cut off from our God and creator. Why? Because of our sin. We've died immediately in our spirits, and we will all die physically one day pending the Lord's return, exactly like Adam and Eve. And that's why when you step back and you look at these consequences, the consequences of sin, shame, guilt, fear, death. If you want to know why Christmas is so important, just look at those things. Those are the the consequences And apart from Christmas, guess what? We don't have a prayer in the world. We don't have hope. We have nothing. That's the first part of Genesis 3. That's the need for Christmas. The need for Christ. I'm so glad it doesn't end there. I mean, aren't you glad it doesn't end there? Because you have the second part of Genesis 3, and really that's the what? That's the promise of Christmas. What's God do? God does here what we should all do when we give the gospel. God has given us the bad news. <laughs> He's given us the bad news. So that now he can give us the good news. The good news makes absolutely no sense unless you understand the bad news. See, that's what's so bad about modern-day evangelism today. We have people running out of churches, running up to people who don't know Christ, saying, Jesus wants you to be happy and forgiven. Don't you want to go to heaven one day? And they're going, yeah, sure, why not? Who wouldn't want that? Sin is never mentioned. There's no need of repentance. 
Just pray this little prayer and you're guaranteed eternal bliss forever and ever when you leave this earth. You'd have to be an idiot not to sign up for something like that. That's not the gospel. The gospel says clearly you have to understand the bad news. You have to understand that, you know what, right now you're dead in your trespasses and sin. There's no hope for you. The good news is Christ, God, made a way through Christ. So we had the bad news, the shame, the guilt, the fear, the consequences. That is what we get for our sin. And there's always, always, always consequences for sin. I know we try to convince ourselves, well, I'm getting away with it. Not hurting anybody else, just me and my little pet sin over here. But trust me, there's consequences. This is what we get for our sin. But now, (laughs) the good news, God gives us a gift exchange. First gift exchange ever. And it wasn't one of those elephant deals or whatever they call them where they give out white elephant gifts, yeah. We give our sin to him, and he gives us something so much better. So much better. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Behold, you have done this. You're cursed above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. That's where that song came from, right? Another one bites the dust. Maybe you don't remember the song. Since verse 15, now we have enmity between you and you and woman, woman, and between you and your offspring, and your offspring shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Theologians call this the first gospel, the proto euangelion, the first gospel. Do we think the gospel is just in the New Testament? That Christmas is just in the New Testament? No, it's right here. We have the first gospel, which means good news. We have the first good news right here in the Garden of Eden. It's given to us after the bad news. Who preaches the first gospel? God does. Isn't that interesting? God preaches the first gospel. God preaches the very first good news, the very first gospel right here in the garden to all of mankind. Now, I understand there's just two of them there, but that's all mankind. That's everybody there is. That's the whole human race, and he preaches the gospel to them. If you turn all the way to the back of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 14, verse 6, it's interesting because it talks about an angel. It says, then I saw an angel flying directly overhead. With, listen, an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and what? People. So at the very beginning in Genesis, you have God proclaiming the first gospel to all of mankind. Two of them, Adam and Eve. At the end of the Bible, at the end of all time, you have an angel proclaiming the gospel to all of mankind, it says. Every nation, tribe, language, and people. You have God at the beginning, the angel at the end. Who's in between? Who's filling the gap? 
Who's supposed to fill the gap between God and the angel preaching the gospel? That's us, right? It's the church. We're to preach the gospel to every nation. We get the opportunity to do that. I mean, are you glad that God, as soon as he assesses his situation, what does he do? He doesn't take any time. He doesn't wait a couple weeks. I want them to think about this, what they've done to me. A couple months, years later, he doesn't come along and say, well, maybe I'll provide a way now. No, this shows the sovereign hand of God. This didn't throw God off his game, the idea that Adam and Eve messed up. It wasn't like God was in heaven. Man, I didn't see this one coming. I mean, they had everything, and then they go and do this. You know, hey, Gabriel, bring me my clipboard. We've got to get to work here on this clipboard. We've got to make a plan. What's going to happen? That's not how it worked. God had already done all the work. He already knew this. He already had a plan. We know that from Ephesians 1, do we not? Ephesians 1. Verses 3 to 10, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. How many of you were around? Some of you are old, but you're not that old, okay? You weren't there. None of us were. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for the adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Don't ever think God didn't know what he was doing. He knew completely what he was doing. He knew what he was going to do before there was anything to do. He knew this was going to take place. We have the bad news happen, and then God is already ready. He's willing to preach to them the good news, the gospel. What does this show us about God? It shows us that he's a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. He's a God that loves us. What's included in this gospel? Well, verses 14 to 15 have a lot in there, but we're just going to boil it down to four elements of the first gospel. The first gospel that God preached all the way back in the garden. Number one, the first gospel in the garden included a judgment of Satan. A judgment of Satan. God goes right to the source of the problem. You notice that? He doesn't go to Adam and Eve, He goes right to the source. Look at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Unfortunately, it doesn't translate real well from the Hebrew into the English. It makes it look like all the livestock, all the beasts of the field, everything is is just cursed. 
But the snake got it the worse. Really, what it's saying here, it's, it's, not, a, it's not talking about all these animals. It's, it's not a, they call it a comparative in the Hebrew. It's not that. It's not God saying, I cursed all of the animals and the snake got it worse. It, Really, it means out of all the livestock, out of all the domestic, that's what the livestock is, out of all the beasts of the field, the wild animals, out of all of them, not in comparison, but selective, out of all the animals, you alone are cursed. Some people say, well, but I still feel so bad for the snake. You know, all you animal lovers. Don't, don't feel bad for the snake. Don't feel bad for the snake. He doesn't. Feel the effects of the curse. The curse isn't on the snake. Look at what it says. It says, because what? You have done this. I mean, he's not talking to the snake. It's kind of like the fruit. Who's he talking to? He's talking beyond the snake, right? He's talking beyond the snake. The snake is non-rational. The snake is doesn't have a self-conscious He's not a being like that. The snake isn't slithering around every day. Man, you know, if Satan would have left me alone, me and my ancestors, we'd be eating steak right now. No! We'd be up on our two legs walking around. Apparently, that's they were before they got cursed. But the snake is not bummed out. The snake's an animal. Animal lovers, tree huggers, they all freak out over this passage. Listen, Satan used the snake, and God redeems even the snake to say this. You know what? Your ultimate purpose is not to be used by Satan. That's not your ultimate purpose. I'm going to redeem you in such a way that you are going to be used for my purpose, God says. And now, evidently, snakes were upright, Because he says, now you will be down. (laughs) And I don't think there's any coincidence here that eating is involved. Where part of the curse on the snake was eating the dust, right? He says, you will eat the dust all the days of your life. What were Adam and Eve tempted to do? Eat. (laughs) See, symbolically, the snake, he doesn't feel the effects, but he illustrates that the curse that God gave out for us. God uses the snake and says, you know what, you're going to be my illustration. I'm going to use you for a benefit, as a benefit for humankind. And you're going to eat dust. Symbolically, it's for Satan. That's who he's talking about. Symbolically, he says, Satan, you know what? You have lifted yourself up for the last time. You want to be God? Ezekiel, go back and read in the book of Ezekiel, right? Five times. I will be like the most high. I will be like the most high. Why? Because Satan is trying to take over. He's trying to raise himself up. And here, what does God do? God says, you will not (laughs) raise yourself up. He raises himself up. He tries to be higher than all. And what does God do? God puts him down 
below the lowest of all. He says, you know what, pal, you're going to eat dust. You tempted them with eating. What you're going to do is eat dust all the days of your life. It's symbolic. You ever think of what a man turns to, what a human being turns to when they die? What does the Bible say? To dust. God is saying, you caused this of my creation. Now you're going to feel the effects of that. And it's a symbol for us every day. Every time we see a snake, it should remind us that no one, no one gets away with anything. It should be a reminder to us that guess who's in control? Not Satan, God. He's the ultimate control of all things. It should be a reminder to us that no matter how great you are, no matter how great you are, when you are disobedient to the most holy God, God is in ultimate control. And there are consequences. Think about it. Lucifer was the highest angel, we're told. The choir choir leader of heaven, the choir director of heaven. Lucifer, the name means son of the morning star. So what's he saying? Even he, the highest angel, when he turns and he is disobedient, there's consequences. You don't get away with it. It's a reminder to us that God is in charge. God is in control. Because what did Satan want to do with this? What was his goal? He wanted to be in control, did he not? So we have this judgment on Satan. You try to put yourself up. Well, I'm going to show you my sovereignty. I'm going to show you my power. And I'm going to shut you down. The snake is symbolic of what Satan's experience will be for all eternity. In this short time, what do snakes illustrate? They illustrate the curse of God. They illustrate the fall of man. That's what should be in our minds when we see a snake. It should be a reminder that God is in control. And when you disobey, you will be brought down. Secondly, you see here a statement of war. And look at verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We don't use that word enmity very much. But just think of enemies. Enemies. Intense, immense animosity, hostility, hatred that leads to conflict. It's what leads to murder, by the way. That's really what this is. And guess who puts it there? Guess who puts this enmity between Satan and the woman? And the woman basically represents mankind. The forces of evil, the forces of mankind. Who puts hatred? Who puts hostility? Satan didn't put it there. Man didn't put it there. Who put it there? God put it there. Isn't that interesting? God says, I'm going to put enmity, hatred between you, Satan, and all of mankind. Now think what Satan is doing, what he's thinking. He's already taken a third of the angels, right? And they're innumerable. We don't know how many angels there are, so that's a lot of angels, a third. And they're cast out of heaven. They're cast down to earth. So he already has a third of the angels with him. Now all of a sudden, through this temptation of Adam and Eve, he thinks he's winning. He's won their confidence. He's, he's, 
It's turned out that all of humanity, just two of them, mind you, but that's 100%, he has. He took the third of heaven with him, and now he has 100% of humanity. I mean, Satan is strutting around feeling pretty good about himself. He thinks he's just pulled off the greatest coup of all time, the greatest triumph of all. I have a third of the angels who can't pro- procreate. They don't reproduce. So that's, he's limited to that. But now I got Adam and Eve. And guess what? They do procreate. They do reproduce. So I have innumerable beings at my discretion. I'm going to create them, recreate them now in my own image, he's probably saying. I've turned them to me against God. And what does God do? God basically says, hey, hold on a minute, just a minute. They're not going to be on your team, by the way. That's not my plan. And my plan is the only thing that matters. They're not going to be on your side. You think you've turned them against me. What I'm going to do is I'm going to turn them against you. I'm going to put enmity, hatred, strife. You thought you got this, Satan? No, you don't. They're going to hate you. They're going to fight against you. Not only that, but I'm going to provide a way that they can love me again. I mean, what an incredible thing that the sovereignty of God is in this. Satan believes he's pulled off the greatest triumph, and in a Just a split second, God turns everything around and says, you don't have anything. You do not have anything. Ephesians 6, 12 says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. If you want to know why life is so hard, right there. That's why. Because you have an enemy who you're fighting that you have enmity with, intense, immense hostility, animosity, hatred. Satan hates us. God has put it in his heart to hate us. And he is at war against you, against me. But you know what? We are also at war with him as well. So God defies and defeats Satan just like that. He turns everything around, showing the sovereignty and the power and the control of God. Yeah, Adam and Eve, they chose to love Satan and hate God. That's basically what they did. They chose to believe Satan and not to believe God. But God is saying, I'm going to provide a way for that to be changed. It's going to take Adam and Eve to die going to have to bring them back it's going to have to take a new heart to take the old heart and put a new heart in he's going to have to transform them so next week we'll finish with what the gospel includes not just the judgment of satan statement of war but also an announcement of hope in the pronouncement of victory. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us hope through Christ and Christ alone. And, Father, that you have provided for us a way back to life 
We're all dead in our trespasses and sin, and you say you do not desire us to remain that way, so you provide a way of salvation through Christ. And Lord, it's through Christ that we have salvation. And so, Father, we thank you. We praise you for your goodness, your grace. We ask, Lord, that you would bless us as we go our way this morning. Remind us of the real reason for this time of the year. That Christmas is needed because the gospel's needed. And Lord, if there's any here this morning who's yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, I pray that now might be the time when they cry out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I understand my need for a Savior because I am a sinner. And I want to trust you. So I put my life in your hands. Submit to you. Ask you to be my Lord and Savior. And that's prayed from a sincere heart. That's a prayer that God will answer. And he will transform you. He will give you a new heart and a new purpose and a desire to live for him each and every day. Pray that as believers, as we leave this place, that we would keep the gospel on our lips this time of year. With everything going on around us, people are open to hearing that there can be hope in Christ. So, Father, we thank you. Pray you bless our fellowship across the way as well. In Jesus' precious name, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. God bless you.